Hey, Pasa Mufasa, welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Let's get down to business. Hey, Pasa Mufasa, Sophie Strand, Cosmogony on Instagram. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. How are fate and fortune treating you today, Sophie? Uh, I think they're treating me pretty well. It's like a spring day in December in the Hudson Valley, which is very odd, but all the birds are singing, so I'm happy. It's odd and terrible, but also actually enjoyable to be outside. And I want to say how much I love the Hudson Valley. I've been up there a number of times, and it's one of those parts of the world where I would honestly consider relocating, especially as a mycophile. There's so much going on there. Yeah, and, and increasingly so, as our ecosystem is getting more and more humid. Um, like this past summer was just the craziest I've ever seen. So did you grow up in the Hudson Valley or did you choose to translocate there? I was born in the city but my parents moved up to the Hudson Valley when I was three so I was raised here. I think I would not have stayed in this area and I would have traveled more broadly if I hadn't been kind of constricted by health stuff and the proximity to the city um, but I love the Hudson Valley. I think it's an incredible place especially if you're like an outdoorsy naturey person. It's where you'd want to be. For sure. I wanted to ask if you're familiar with Doug Bierend, the writer. He's fantastic. Yes. I'm such a fan of his book and his just his whole way of interacting with subject matter. He's done a lot for fungi recently. So Getting validation from people like that has given me so much confidence to continue what I'm doing just to feel like, oh man, that guy's an amazing writer and I'm a huge fan of his. So it's great to have you on the podcast too. I'm, I want to do more writers too. You know, we call the podcast Mycopreneur, but it's kind of a misnomer. Let's start off just talking about your page Cosmogony and what makes your work stand out to me, among other things, is that you're largely written word based and in this digital visual attention economy where people are trying to bombard you and get the hook point three seconds you need to have visuals that capture people's attention and i find that your writing on your instagram page it challenges the audience to stop and to invest attention and focus into your work do you like social media or is it more of a dark necessity that you feel you have to indulge in? This is a great question and I have not been asked it. I was very opposed to social media for a long time and I worked in publishing but in a very kind of underground mycorrhizal system invisible way which is I was a ghostwriter. I ghost wrote people's books and children's books and so you know I was just working under the ground. Um, so I saw how everything worked, but I was never actually visible. And especially social media felt like this, like way too visible and that you had to be kind of superficial and easily legible so that someone could reshare really quickly. So the way I got funneled into actually using social media was in no way calculated. It was like a last ditch attempt. It was like I had written this novel at the start of quarantine. It got an agent. It didn't sell. I'd given up on a lot of personal like that I was ever going to publish a book under my own name and get my own work out there. So I just started posting my work online in this way that is like a pretty paradoxical form as to the media I was posting it on, like 3,000 word essays on Instagram. And I had probably 4,000 new followers in a month. And so I didn't plan that. It just kind of happened. And I do think in a kind of like fungal way, I try and, you know, put my little arbuscular root 
hyphal rootlet into other people's rootlets and connect with every single reader. And it's, it's reaching a point where I think that's untenable, but it has, I think, created a, a, not a very superficial community, but a pretty dense community where the readers come back because they feel like they know me. And I feel like I know them. Yeah, so that's a little bit of a explanation. I love that. I just finished a book by John Lanier, who I've read a few of his books. He's like an early VR Silicon Valley pioneer. He's actually been a very vocal critic of Silicon Valley. And this book in particular is called 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Right Now. He makes a lot of great points in it. And the one counterpoint that I kind of have is look at the fungal communities that have sprung up on Instagram, the cultivators, the activists, and that's sort of an unintentional byproduct of a lot of these social mediums is all of a sudden, now I've built contacts to cultivators in Thailand and in India and in Uganda, et cetera. And I don't think there's any meaningful way that would have happened, especially at such like a citizen science level, unless these behemoth social media platforms existed. So that's a whole broad topic we can go into in depth. But before we get to more of that, I also wanna know what does cosmogony mean? So this is one of those things where you choose an Instagram handle like when nobody follows you and then like people identify you with it so you can't change it. It means the creation of a universe and it can be applied to both astronomy and physics or also like mythology, which is kind of how I was thinking about it. But I played with the spelling based on the spelling of this indigenous storyteller Polygon Allen so that it kind of trended towards female storytelling. But these days, I'm feeling very unattached to gender at all. I mean, I identify as a female, but I also wouldn't have wanted my name to be so gendered if I could pick it now. But you know, what you, know, you kind of land on what you land on. Hey, you're talking to someone whose AIM screen name was Sushi Cowboy 1979. I still make music under the moniker Sushi Cowboy because I like the juxtaposition of cultural values. I like this idea of like the West and the East finding some integration together. So it was sort of unintentional at the time. And I just thought it was a funny name, but you know, names are, are humorous in that you could get a name and then it just takes on its own meaning over time. And like, it might be something where you didn't put a lot of, you know, intention into it. You didn't think this was going to be your moniker for a decade or whatever. And then all of a sudden that's who people know you as. So names are a funny thing for sure. And in the, in the context of this podcast being called Mycopreneur. So I'm very interested in the intersection between entrepreneurship, which I view as solving problems for people and mushrooms, of course, which I think mushrooms have the capacity and the demonstrated potential to solve so many problems when leveraged appropriately. I've been increasingly fascinated with refugees and refugee camps who grow mush grow mushrooms. And there's been numerous instances of this, like Congolese refugees in Rwanda who were taught how to cultivate oyster mushrooms. And then because they had limited space and they had scarce access to resources like water, mushrooms made sense. And that's happened in Syria. So that's kind of what I'm looking at it more as like, wow, how many different people can solve problems in their own lives and the lives of their community just by leveraging fungi. In the spirit of the podcast, I'm curious, what first got you interested in mushrooms? Oh man, this is like such a long answer. So at any point to say like, please stop. I always loved gross small things and I grew up in the dirt. I grew up in the shadow of a mountain in the forest. My family pretty much had a zoo. We rehabilitated like, you know, possums. We had cats, dogs, geese. 
And I'd always be down on the ground looking at, at mushrooms. Like I was very interested in fairies and I really associated fairies and mushrooms. I was also really fascinated with poison <laughs> and with kind of like dark magic. And I also felt like they kind of skirted the edge of that. But the really fascinating thing happened was when I got to college, I got ill when I was 16, very seriously ill. And it took a super long time I kept getting diagnoses. Every time I'd get critically ill and almost die, they'd think they'd figure out what it was, and then they wouldn't. And this kept happening. And I was in college, and I found out about mycorrhizal fungi, and I became obsessed. And this was a moment when there was not a lot of information online. And I was like trying to get past paywalls and like read these really dense articles and kind of teach myself information. Like I was, I loved mushrooms and I would go on mushroom walks and I'd kind of come to mushrooms through herbalism and my herbal teachers. But it was the mycorrhizal fungi that really pricked my attention. And just at the moment as I was really settling on that as being like a philosophical frame, through Deleuze and Guattari and like really beginning to think about mycorrhizal fungi as being like, as you said, like this, this fix for me in so many different ways, I found out, I finally was diagnosed with genetic connective tissue disease. And mycorrhizal fungi are the connective tissue of the soil. So that was an aha moment. I would say that was like the, crystal, the crystallization of this long-term passion finally becoming like, oh yeah, so we're kinned. That's why we have kinship. We lean into the psychedelic aspect of mushrooms on this podcast. For so many folks, you hear about their origin story, where they first got sucked into the mushroom universe. And plenty of people I know, they'll say, first time I ate mushrooms, it didn't really do a whole lot for me. And for this reason or the other, other folks, it's like, it hit me like a two-ton train right away. So I'm just curious, your initial foray into the world of magic mushrooms, did it click for you or resonate immediately? And what was that like? I think it happened at a very chaotic time in my life. And looking back retrospectively, I can see that it was critical. Like, it was extraordinarily magical. I'd been on this, like, anarchic nature camp that, like, was always on the edge of getting shut down because it didn't follow any rules. Like, we didn't carry, like, any safety kits. Like, there weren't... It was, it was a mess, but it was amazing. And we'd been off the grid for, like, three weeks. So we were, like, our brains were totally reset. And we were canoeing down the Badenkill River, and me and some friends went off on a solo version and we went onto this river island and I remember it was like late at night and the river, the Badenkill River was like flowing around us and some kid just handed me mushrooms and I didn't really question, I just ate them and lay down next to the fire. And the experience I had I think has actually informed me going forward in how I conceptualize everything which is I realized that time, for me at least in that moment, flowed both ways. The future was refluxing into the past and pulling you forward. And that was like a very critical conceptual moment for me that probably bloomed way later, like post-college, yeah. So I had my first psilocybin mushroom experience at the age of 17 between junior year and senior year of high school. There was a pantheon of molecules available. You know, I was at, in high school in San Diego. So like for me, when I had my first mushroom experience, it was like head and shoulders above anything else I had tried in terms of the individualism, the personal significance. And that was only on a half eighth, but it was enough for me to know that there was a magnetic resonance and a deeper mystery that I felt so compelled to pursue and to learn more about. And after that one experience, you know, I just couldn't believe how a handful of dried, weird peanut tasting fungi could transport me into these imaginary realms and these, you know, flights of fancy. So after that, I started reading a lot more and that informed 
the broader relationship that I have with fungi is like, okay, I'm going to read all the Arrowhead trip reports. I'm going to read Terrence McKenna. I'm going to read Mark Plotkin and just kind of whatever I could get my hands on at the moment. So that really like propelled me on my journey. But, you know, even talking with a lot of friends now, they'll say, yeah, I tried it when I was 17 and I didn't really get it. You know, it's just kind of a fun thing to do. And then like later, you know, when some real shit blew up in my life, I came back to this. And I know plenty of people who have like gotten back into it in their late 20s or in their mid 20s after taking years of kind of, you know, leaving it in the blind spot or whatnot. So I just think everybody's got their own path. And for me, it clicked that first time. Yeah. And I mean, I think I think it clicked for me, too. Like I was like uh, a big fan. Like I was like pro mushroom, pro, pro magic mushrooms from there on out. But I didn't do them with any regularity until probably right before quarantine when I started microdosing. Like I do them every once in a while, but right before quarantine, I was like, I think I'm going to try microdosing. And that was extraordinary. I would say like that was a much slower build experience, but the way that helped me break habitual issues that I thought would never break was miraculous. Yeah. So microdosing, I will say, is pretty amazing. I'm new to it and I love it. I got to say, I was kind of skeptical because I was one of those, I like a heroic dose types. But just what I've noticed and like from a lot of my experiences, especially when I was younger, is I had no frame for integrating them. I think microdosing is a great way to gradually change your behavior without having such a jarring reintegration or like return into society, into your life. I'd love to talk about your writing and and in particular, the intersection between spirituality, storytelling and ecology, which is evident in the vernacular and the themes of your work. And I find fungi to occupy this intersection. And it's so, fungi are so intersectional to me. They bind together planetary ecology. And I also think they could function in the same way across human civilization if we let them in terms of shaping culture and shaping spirituality, even geopolitics. I'm an unabashed proponent of their ability to help guide us as humans and to help us understand right relationship with each other and with nature. You know, there's a, there's a quote, inspiration is for amateurs, right? And you're right. Like you've got deadlines, you've got a book you're working on, which I want to talk about. So most creators develop a process and that process is pretty intersectional in a lot of ways. So I'm curious, how do you get your work out into the world and like force yourself to make your writing happen? This is interesting because I feel like there are two different answers. The one answer is that I would have given you a year ago is when I was producing a 900 page densely researched historical fiction project, I wrote 500 words a day at least every day. And I treated it like hygiene, like I couldn't not do it. And maybe I'd delete the words the next day. As you said, it wasn't about inspiration. It was about showing up every day so that you could get something done and outlining it. So very regimented. But I would say a year ago, my, the writing, I was in a very, very pressurized place personally and professionally where I was feeling really like stuck, not stuck, but just like despairing about anything moving. And I feel like I went to the crossroads. It's funny. I wrote a book about fungi or a short project my senior year in college. And my professors were very, very excited about it. And I tried to sell it afterwards. And fungi were not hot then. Like no one wanted to, no one thought they were cool. And no one wanted it. So I kind of shoved it away. And that was years ago. And I, about a year ago, I was like, you know, I think I'm ready to return to this thinking and to this idea of mythology and fungal connections 
fungi's propensity to get involved, to queer an idea of a self, its species, and how can we use that to compost our stories right now when we're trying to decenter the human and think more like ecosystems and less like individuals? And at that moment, I would say all my planning and how my writing happened went out the door and I started producing probably like 2,000 words a day, every single day until today. <laughs> and it's been just a little bit like a possession experience. I've been joking that it's like Ophiocordyceps unilateral is taking over the carpenter ants. Like I got inoculated. I had been inoculated before, but it became very critical. And then I, I just had to go up the plant stem and sporulate. You brought a really interesting point up that I actually wanted to dive into, and that's about the myth of the creative lone genius, right? Where there's this myth of like, you go out to the woods and you get this divine download, and then that is how creative geniuses are born. But I think there's a lot of context or evidence to argue that most of these folks are connected to communities, right? It's not the lone genius. So I'd be curious to hear about how did you find your community and what has that process been like? Have you ever felt alienated from communities? I think most of us have at some point. And how did you exchange that sense of alienation and like trying to do it on your own for the position you have now, which is where you're connected to an ecosystem? Well, I think I'll start with my favorite example, which is I always have felt like an exile to a certain extent because I'm disabled and I'm a survivor of early abuse. So those things have always, even if they don't show up on me um, superficially, have always made me feel like I'm outside of certain discussions or experiences. But especially because I've gone in and out of critical illness in my life, I've oftentimes identified with ghost pipe, which is a mycoheterotroph plant, which depends completely on Russula or Lactarius mycorrhizal fungi to support it and nourish it. So it is totally relationally constituted. It's not, it can't take care of itself. It is, I mean, just like we have community, we are created by community. Yet there is no lone genius. There is no ghost pipe without its fungal plug-in. My parents are writers, and they're an incredible ecosystem of people who support me, my whole family. I ran women's storytelling gatherings for years, and that created a whole hyphal network that branched across the Hudson Valley and included lots of different people. I like to get involved, and if fungi teach us anything, it's to get involved to like follow our appetites and our desires and see where they take us. So yeah, I mean, this book that I just, I wrote two books in the past six months and those books couldn't have happened without my readers too, like online, like people responding to excerpts and like giving more, me more advice, sending me papers. Like I feel like I have on the ground community with also my more than human kin, like the woodchucks and the rivers and the fungi outside my house and my family and my friends. But I also have like people like you who I'm meeting every day and we're cross pollinating, like we're sharing ideas. And I, I'm a compost heap. Like my ideas come from my mouth, but I, they're an amalgamation of so many different people. Yeah. A hundred percent. I feel that way traveling. I've, I'm an avid traveler, certainly a lot more before the pandemic. And I've noticed that when I would just show up in a new place, just it would frame my way of thinking in such a different, imaginative, exciting way. And a lot of times when I go on a vacation or like I prefer to think of it more as traveling than a vacation. I don't even need to do anything. Just being in a new place and walking down the street and dropping in on an open mic. So those for me are a lot of kind of like, I think my identity is shaped at the peripheries and at the margins. And uh, I learned over time not to have to like, 
force creativity just to make it a constant part of my lifestyle. I guess to explain my process that I've been doing is I realize I create better work when it's an experience that I'm distilling. I'm not just like sitting there alone trying to think of what should I write? I got invited out for three days to this extraordinary little town, not even a town, there's only 200 people there called Naha. And it's the last bastion of the Lacondones, which is one of the only tribes that was never colonized. They escaped colonization from the conquistadors basically by just living on the peripheries, by being far enough in the jungle and small enough where they weren't colonized. And by having that experience, I just started taking notes. It's like trying to capture my impression. And that's sort of an example of like, now I can create content from that because I had an experience. It's not something that I had to like will into existence. It's more just like capturing the impression. So I just wanna share, that's a little bit where I've been going or how I've been approaching the work here. And to shift the narrative back into your work and whatnot. So this is your book. It's called The Flowering Wand, Rewilding the Sacred Masculine, I believe is the working title, coming out fall 2022 from Inner Traditions. I'd love to hear about how the idea for this particular book or intersection was shaped and what can you share with us about writing this book? Well, first I'd like to thank you just for sharing about how creativity is about generosity of attention. And it seems like that's something you live like pretty authentically, which is you're always going to have better ideas when you're open to being surprised and having someone else in inflect themselves upon you. Um, so thank you. Um, uh, how, how did The Flowering Wand come about? I had finished this book, which had been about Rabbi Yeshua and Mary Magdalene and rewilding Second Temple period Palestine and folk Judaism. Um, so I've been really interested in how patriarchy has been conflated with masculinity, but masculinity pre-patriarchy wasn't necessarily a dominator bad things so like is there a way to go back and look at myths and stories and folklore and kind of compost them with modern science and philosophy and see if we can get something more ecologically resonant and more generous to men or to people who identify with some kind of thread of masculinity because you know gender is not biologically determined it's just a cultural costume we put on but it should be we should handle it we should we should address how it's operating. And, um, but this book that I had written about Rabbi Yeshua um, wasn't selling. So I started to just kind of write about all the research I'd done. Just thinking about like, can we rewild stories of masculinity? And Dionysus had been a big research point for me because I always saw Dionysus as being on a rhizomatic continuity with Jesus. And that had, for me, I'd been thinking about Myths as being fruiting bodies, mushrooms, above ground representations that look like individuals, but are really just reproductive events to sporulate underground, soil-based, more than human wisdom. So Dionysus and Orpheus and Yeshua, Jesus, are all mushrooms of the same mythic mycelium that probably predates patriarchy and had some, some um, goodies in there that could be helpful right now. Um, and I posted this stuff online. I kind of was just like, what if I wrote about this online? And people loved it. And then my editor found me. Like, I, I wrote the book in three weeks. It was crazy. I was out-of-body experience. Um, I also wrote it in conversation with other people. I posted it online. People would correct me and come back, tell me what they wanted me to write about and research. And so it was highly involved. It was like, it was not a solitary experience. It was like a party. 
Dionysus has been submitted to a smear campaign by the Romans, who were scared of him. He was a pre-Roman god because he inspired Spartacus and revolt against um, the imperial regimes. So he's, he's seen as a god of partying, but he's also a god of the tools that dismantle the master's house. You know, the invasive species, the fungi that come in and digest things from the outside. So the writing of the book was kind of like a party. And then my editor found me through social media. <laughs> So I've been trying to sell my novel through my agent in the very traditional way. I ended up selling my novel through social media, which is amazing. That's what it's there for. You know, ultimately the attention economy cuts both ways. And there's certainly a lot of manipulation and misinformation and this and that and the other that social media has brought into the world. But in a very real sense, it has enabled these sort of mycelial network connections to really blossom and give give fruiting bodies out to the world. I, I think it's a great thing for small creators. And as another example, like I started my videography business a couple of years just through social media, just sharing things. So that's something I think a lot of us have a conflicted relationship with. And I had to learn over time, like how to not waste all my fucking time just like scrolling, you know, looking at, the, but it's awesome to be able to connect with folks like you and to hear more about the work and, and whatnot. And, you know, take that away and go do something out in the real world that's significant with it. And I, I wanted to go back and visit your, your college days. Okay. Cause did you say that you majored in writing as well? Did you study writing formally and did that help evolve your way of relating to the written word? So I went to Bard college and I was very lucky to arrive there when a lot of really exciting thinkers and professors were there and to seek out their one-on-one -on -one mentorship to the point where like they became annoyed. I was taking like five different one-on-one -on -one tutorials. I majored in medieval studies and creative writing and I also completed a degree in philosophy without the final thesis. So it was kind of like a combination of things. It was like way too much to take on but I did it anyway. So medieval studies, storytelling, and I would say that the creative writing degree like it created interesting relationships with famous writers and it gave me a container to do types of writing, but ultimately I had to deprogram from it. People were trying to make me into a kind of academic anthropocentric writer where the writing I was doing was only for other professors. And sure, I was getting accolades, but no one who I knew could access my writing. So it took me a couple of years post-college to deprogram from studying writing, quote unquote. The thing that was really helpful was the medieval studies, was looking at these old manuscripts and these weird saint stories, and that was much wilder and more feral. And that kind of hands-on, almost tactile experience of like looking online through actual pages of vellum manuscripts and like trying to decipher Middle English and reading stories that ended halfway through because the author died, like that, I think, was so much more um, interesting to me. Yeah. Storytelling is like actually being like material. Yeah, material culture. The next thing I want to shift gears into is to talk about what writers and books have inspired you. I have a ever-growing reading list and it's something I've been very intentional about getting back into is like reading books and using my Kindle and I'm reading a book called Birding Without Borders right now. Who are some of the writers or seminal writers and influences who have had a big impact on your work and your life? Well, I do think that I was really, really influenced by um, a bunch of like queer female historical fiction writers who like pretty much saved my life. Like I found that, that, that writing and I was like, oh, good, thank you. So I'd say like Anne Rice, Mary Renault, Mary Stewart, Anya Seaton. So like if anyone wants, all of their books are juicy and inappropriate and deeply well-researched. Yeah, so I would say that as I was growing up, 
fiction was definitely a um, a land in which and Tolkien, like I, the storytelling always fascinated me. But I've always also loved science writing, and um, and I was I was actually kind of I've I've always been upset that there's not very good poetic interesting science writing. Like I found Michael Pollan when I was in high school, and I loved that. Um, Barbara Kingsolver who's a fiction writer, but who's also very ecologically literate. Like, she bridges that gap sometimes. Donna Haraway was very, very influential when I found her work, the philosopher-anthropologist. I'm trying to think. I mean, recently, Merlin Sheldrake's Entangled Life felt like a real step between poetry and science. Um, That felt like a really great model for something that other people in other disciplines could do, and I hope that they do do. You know, I wanted to touch on a comment you made maybe in the last answer that you had about how inaccessible a lot of scientific writing is. And I think that's unfortunate. And I have friends, actually one of my best friends who encouraged me to start this podcast at the very beginning is a professor at Occidental and he's got his first academic treatise coming out this year. And it's like super awesome. He's getting invited to all the conferences and interviews and this and that. But like we're working on a podcast with him too. And so much of it flies over my head and I consider myself to be fairly intelligent. And I look through these white papers, right? Trying to find info. And so I just love to see someone like break down the gates and start to make a lot of this really pertinent, valuable information that's covered in academic texts and in white papers more accessible to people. So that's another one of my sort of callings that I want to do is try to like take a lot of this good info and distill it into a relatable format that actually benefits people. And it's not just like the gatekeepers of academia who go and rub elbows at these high profile conferences and whatnot and Harvard and in you know, Oxford and things like that. So yeah, that, that comment, I just, it resonated with me in that I don't want to see writing and all this valuable information siloed away with all these academic gatekeepers and paywalls and whatnot. No, and I mean, why do people distrust science? They can't access it. They can't read it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. The book that I'm just finishing right now, which I can't share the title, but it's in the process of becoming a thing, um, it's all about trying to tell poetic science stories, like trying to open up these a, a science as being something that is juicy, that isn't just sterile, that isn't just in a lab. But here's the problem. I'm not a scientist. So it's just me like trying to like write to scientists and people being like, will you help me understand this? <laughs> but maybe that's that's how it's supposed to be. It's all about this, that connectivity and about asking for help, n- knowing that you're never going to know everything. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's where that ecosystem comes in again, right? Is just to be connected to the community. And it helps bring me down a couple pegs for sure to just go out and hang out with folks and not feel like you have to be so competitive. That's another thing that I think I've learned from fungi and over time is like, Um, competition versus cooperation and like being able to be part of a community where people are actively fostering each other's growth and they're giving you feedback and they're helping you. I wanted to ask you a question, which is like, what are the writers that shaped you and what are the writers that are like prickling your attention now? Yeah. So right now I'm reading a lot about the La Condones because I just went out to visit these uh, folks, the tribe, and they're so interesting to me because they really are one of the last barely open windows back to time immemorial. And so I'm reading a book called The Last Lords of Palenque right now, which I found in a sort of a flea shop. I just saw it and I recognized, oh, I know where the La Condon jungle is and I know where these folks live. I want to read more about them. And so that's been awesome because 
for example, you know, if I'm traveling somewhere, like I know I'm going to La Condon, I'll try to pick up content that's about that. And it makes the experience more complete for me. The same, I go to Mexico City, I try to find a book about Mexico City and learn about that. And so extrapolating from there, I'm reading The Birding Without Borders right now. And in terms of like, who was a seminal influence on me, E.E. E. Cummings had such a big impact on me. I remember just building a deeper relationship more quickly with that free-flowing sense of writing, of like not needing to be so confined by structure and by syntax, since feeling is first, one who pays attention to the syntax of things will never wholly kiss you. Like I couldn't probably quote too many more lines from memory from other writers, but that's how big of an impact E.E. E. Cummings had on me. And Mark Plotkin was a big one. I name dropped him earlier. Tales of a Shaman's Apprentice. That opened my eyes to the legitimacy of what a lot of native cultures were doing and are doing. And that I, have, I was a sophomore in high school and I'm reading this book written by a Yale affiliated anthropologist and botanist. I think he's a botanist. And he's talking about these advanced technologies that these quote primitive people have down in South America that he had access and experience to through living with them. And no one was talking about that in my world, right? For we, So at least that was a big one. Kira Salik is a writer too. She wrote a cover story, National Geographic Adventure about her ayahuasca experience. That one blew my mind because I had never heard of like a ceremonial or a ritual entheogen or a plant. And she was kind of just like writing from the perspective of a Western National Geographic writer talking about these visions that she had and this immense, extraordinary healing that she received. And I remember reading that when I was a freshman in high school and that launched me on this inquiry of like, I got to learn more about this. Like, you know, this, this is the antidote to the modern condition, I think in many ways. So those are a few. And then Terrence McKenna, I got to drop him. I think for so many of us, like food of the gods, when I was a senior in high school and I had little, you know, one experience or two experience with mushrooms after reading food of the gods, I felt a sense of license or permission to just go for it. And that paid dividends and, and is continuing to. So those are probably the writers right now. And Sophie Strand too is the other one I'll name drop. So thanks for sharing. Yeah, I always love, I'm, I have a book list that's ever growing of things that I'm adding on. Yeah. I always love to close with A, what are you working on right now? You mentioned a book you can't tell us the title of, which is awesome. I love that air of mystique, but what are you working on right now? And do you have any parting shots for the audience? Anything off the top of your head that you just want to get out there and promote or share or encourage people with? Check me out to see my books coming out. SophieStrand.com, my Facebook, my Instagram. That's my little plug. And then um, what am I working on right now? I'm finishing a book. I can't tell the title, but it's on deep ecology and healing. And it's pretty much trying to problematize purity culture and health wellness culture, but through ecological storytelling, like pouring human stories into more than human forms. Like what does a story look like when it's lichen? What does a story look like in the story of a pitcher plant or a mycoheterotroph or um, an invasive species like mustard green? So that's what I'm finishing right now. That book is technically done, but as you said, I'm putting together the pitch and the proposal so that I can figure out how to actually um, get it into the, get it to the right publisher. The one thing I'd like to end on is not my own thing, but I'm very excited about it, which is it's Spun Underground, which is um, this new uh, organization that's trying to protect underground fungal systems and to encourage research into them. And I think that's really, really quite amazing. And as someone with connective tissue disease, I always try and um, 
advocate for the connective tissue of the earth. So I would say check out Spun Underground and what they're doing um, to help the, the climate and um, promote re resilient ecosystems by boosting fungal diversity. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks for wrapping that up and putting a little bow on it for us. Sophie Strand, we are huge fans of your work and are going to continue to follow you. And please keep us up to date with any happenings in your micropreneurial corner of the universe. And thanks again for coming on the Micropreneur Podcast. You're welcome back anytime if you have something you want to talk about or chit-chat or jump on. So we wish you continued prosperity and fortune in your writing and your endeavors. And to you too. Thank you so much. There's so much to cover in the mushroom universe and so many micropreneurs leveraging the infinite potential of fungi to create a more ecologically balanced, inclusive, and equitable world for all of us mischievous little monkeys. I am completely stoked that you've chosen to spend some of your hard-earned time in our little corner of the microverse. Hop on the gram, say what's up, at Micopreneur Podcast. That's the handle. Don't get it twisted. We've got the full suite of social media up and running. Twitter, Micopreneur. Got the YouTubes dialed in, Micopreneur. Drop us a line. Tell your grandma and your kooky uncle. Tell your wife and your kids. If you're a Micopreneur yourself, you want to hop on the pod, by all means, willkommen, bienvenidos, welcome. Don't be a stranger. Let us know your thoughts on this episode, and also let us know what you want to hear in future episodes. This is a team effort. Thanks for stopping by the Micopreneur Podcast. Have a lovely day. We'll see you back here next week.